and welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. We are here. It is the beginning of October. It's actually the birthday of Hallie Parker and Annie James from The Parent Trap. Oh, you're right. It's oh October 11th. Yes, so. let's. we should celebrate with some Oreos and peanut butter. We absolutely should break out those Oreos, break out the peanut butter, and join your separated ripped up picture of your estranged parents because it's October 11th. (laughs) So happy October 11th, everybody. And today, I mean, I don't know if we have any liberty to spill. Do we find out anything further about Gabby Petito? I don't even know. Um, The only thing that did come up was that he apparently... I think it was that he originally his parents said that he left was last seen on the 14th and now it's been revealed that they were like oh oh whoops sorry we got that off by a day he was actually he left to go camping the 13th like he gave the wrong they gave the wrong day oh my god Um, already lying yeah it just I don't know a lot of people think he's on the Appalachian Trail and I mean, he could be, but it just seems to me like they're making no progress on it. So Ugh, I don't it's know. terrible. Well, as we said last time, his friends or her friends, somebody had made the note that he was equipped to survive in the wild for a really long time. Like he's sort of a Bear grills type. Right. He likes to get out there, get rustic, you know, be one with nature. So it's not a foreign thought to think that he could survive for a long ass time by himself and not be found, not be hunted down by the Petitos, although they're, they got to be hot on the trail. And oh. I would be running like hell from those people because they are understandably furious with this kid, especially now that it's clear he did it. Yeah, well, uh, just thinking another thing that came out was, um, I think the last time we talked, or it might have been right after the last time, was that um, there was a discrepancy discovered in one of the interviews with his sister. And she kind of had said, oh, the, the weirdest thing was that I haven't talked with him, like talked to him. And then it was revealed that she was actually at the camp out with the family or whatever. She came back because everybody was calling her a liar and saying, we know you were there. So why are you saying you haven't spoken with him since he came back? She and her husband actually came outside because protesters went to her house and, um, she, I think, clarified everything. I think she is sincere and genuine. Like she hasn't spoken with her parents. Her parents have cut her off. But I think the funniest thing is that somebody did ask her about, is Brian an outdoorsy? Like, do you think he could survive or whatever? And she's like, I- I'd say he's a, he's a mediocre outdoorsman. <laughs> like, <laughs> which I oh. thought was kind of funny. Like the biggest sibling slam right there. So <laughs> yeah, that is such a sibling slam, especially it's classic that you would kind of know something about your sibling that your sibling's super into and right. just be yeah. like, hey. like he, he wants to be, he just wants to portray himself. Like no plastic water bottles for me. Like he's Mr. Environmental, you know, whatever. And she's like, yeah, he, he's okay. You know, <laughs> love yeah. it. Oh my God. Slam him, get him yeah. while he's down because my gosh. And I hope that that's true, that he's not that much of a survivalist because uh, he does not deserve to survive with what no. he did. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. So I don't know. There was one guy in one of the Carolinas that swore that he saw him, but I don't know. I listened to the guy's interview and uh, to me, the guy seems a little, a little 
kooky. I don't know, just a little kind of out there. So we'll see. I mean, he called it into the FBI. They've investigated it. And we obviously haven't heard anything. But other than that, I like every time that I check, you know, for updates, it's just kind of like the ongoing search for Brian Laundry, and there's no real updates. So God, well, we will wait with bated breath for those updates to come through because I know there's a lot of people who would like to get their oh, hands yeah. on Brian and oh, air that dirty laundry, like we right. said. Yeah, hang him out on that clothesline. Oh yeah, he hang him out to, be- to dry. Yeah, <laughs> hung him out to dry, and you know, string him up by the toenails because right. he's just ooh, such a jerk. Ooh. Ooh, that's an image. I know. <laughs> but anyway, speaking of images, what might be more grotesque than the image of <laughs> Brian Laundry hanging by the feet is the design, um, the different designs yes. that were associated with the company that is the subject of today's show. And that company is the fabled, the great, the powerful Lula Row. Mm. And this company has been hitting the news lately as kind yeah. of a hot topic because there was a big documentary that went on Amazon and it's all about kind of the rise and fall of Lula Row and the empire and its creators. And it's just super interesting. We both were fascinated by it. And as soon as we saw a coming attraction, we just knew we had to see it because if you're anybody who's been on the internet for maybe 10 years, yeah. you've seen the advertisements for Lula. Oh, yeah. Even if you think you haven't, like once you start seeing that imagery, you yep. realize, oh man, that's what that was. Like, that's yep. what I was seeing. And it's just so interesting the way that the company got these people hooked. It's a typical MLM. And it really harkens back to our first ever episode. I was going to say, yeah, this is, this is really brownie, not so wise right here. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Emphasis on the brownie because some of the leggings were brown and wet and moldy because they were left outside in the rain Mm -hmm. for days. But this is a typical MLM and it's a classic example of kind of quote unquote, empowering women, but really taking away all of their power and using these false kind of narratives, these false um, sayings of boss babe and, you know, women empowerment and all this stuff. And it's really like, "Mm, no, that's not what you're selling. Right. So, yeah. So if we want to get into kind of the history of the company, Um, The company became an incorporation on May 1st, 2013. And if you think the name is a snappy name, it's actually a combination of the first three granddaughters of the creator who were Lucy, Lola, and Monroe. So you've got Lou, Monroe, adorable. And I mean, if you look at the advertising and you look at the little emblem that they have, it's it's pretty hideous and, you know. It, yeah. it was a sign of things to come, I think, with some of the design I flaws know. that they had in their products. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do think it's funny that, like, in this documentary, their little kind of, like, square logo emblem was so easy to flip <laughs> to the side and make it a pyramid. I thought it was yes. so funny. So, oh, my God. It's hysterical. It, it just, like, worked perfectly there. But, yeah. So, this company... So, first of all, Mark and Deanne, I don't know. I... I off the bat, I just got a real slimy kind of feeling from them. They're just kind of shysty. I don't know what other words you want to throw out type of people that just 
I, I, I felt like you couldn't trust them at all. Couldn't trust them as far as you could throw them. Um, and they both formed this company um, after Deanne had apparently been at this swap meet originally. This was like years before. And she found some guy selling, I guess, little girls dresses, which alone, a little creepy, but okay. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, and she said that they originally retailed for like 80 to a hundred. So what kind of little girls dresses and probably like the eighties were 80 to a hundred. I don't know. Um, but they were for $10. So she bought up a ton. She ended up doing parties, selling, you know, a ton of these little girls dresses. And then she moved on to maxi skirts that she had made herself and was doing the same thing again, kind of the Tupperware, you know, party type of thing. And then, um, these leggings, these gorgeous, ugh, and I hate the description they use, buttery soft, which I don't know why it really bothers me. The butter gives me out too. Ugh, ugh, I don't want to wear butter, like gross. I don't know. So um, the, the leggings though, were really kind of the thing that launched this whole LuLaRoe organization. It was kind of incredible. I mean, and what's so funny is Deanne's maiden name was actually Startup. Yes. Yes. That was great. (laughs) So funny. So like, Mm -hmm. what are the odds that she would be a startup? She grew up as, you know, a Mormon, really Mm -hmm. hardworking family. And I think that the family really took that, that name to heart, the startup name, because her parents were hard workers. They were self-starters and she was big into the idea of working hard, creating her own company. Um, Her father was you know, I guess a direct descendant of the founder of the startup candy company. It was the first factory in the United States to make and sell the first filled candy bar. So thanks for that startup. Okay. And they're actually still a family run business in Utah. Really? Cool. Yeah. Hmm. And so interesting. Yeah. So the father, Albert and his wife, Maureen startup had 11 children. So Deanne was one of 11 Mm -hmm. and her twin sister Diane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> draw your own conclusions. So creative. Yep. Um, they were just this big, motivated Mormon family. And eventually, you know, they, they had all these different side hustles. And like in 1945, the couple actually founded the American Family and Femininity Institute which was, which is a starting point for kind of, I was going to say, this will come up later then this makes a little more sense. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's kind of the um, launching point for all these jacked up values that Uh. Deanne would later espouse um, Mm -hmm. under the guise of empowering women under the guise of women, supporting women. It was really all just under the thinly veiled notion that femininity was the real place of women. So the whole idea of this, book, this, um, you know, this institute was to instruct women to practice saying I'm a helpless woman at the mercy of the big, strong man. And it was all about catching a guy. And they, even the couple turned this work into $300 femininity forums, which were sessions where they could teach these women how to find a husband. So it's basically how to get your MRS degree. 
Yeah. This is taking me back to Bill Gothard here in the Duggar story, big time, the Advanced Training Institute. Yeah. It's so true. It's classic fundamentalism. You know, no matter how you package it, no matter what you call it, it's still... You know, it's all the same thing. So eventually Deanne's mother, Maureen, actually became the California chair of this organization that was entirely dedicated to fighting the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. So it was led by this conservative activist. And it's just, uh, it's scary. So this is what, this is the kind of stuff that these people stood for. And it's, I don't know. So Deanne had always this passion she claims for clothing, always wanted to start up her own business as a startup. And she studied fashion merchandising at Brigham Young University, of course, as a good Mormon does. And she worked at a consultant at a bridal dress shop. And she just, it went from there. I mean, like you said, she eventually started making her maxi skirts and the rest was sort of history. Deanne just took this and ran and with the whole idea of dresses being kind of the ideal feminine outfit Mm -hmm. she became a self-proclaimed dress lady and she would do these dress parties do these sales in women's homes similar to brownie wise in our tupperware episode which you might want to revisit that for a little background on the first ever mlm um but she would come to these different ladies homes And she would share her dresses and then they would all tell their friends. She would bring a thousand different dresses so that they could shop and take home their dresses at the sale and they could just stay in the comfort of their own home. So that was incredibly powerful because it's just this, again, it's this sort of, um, what's the word? Like two opposite things at once. Oxymoron. It's an oxymoron because you're keeping the women in the home right? and you're under the guise of, okay, let's give them more power. Let's give right. them more to do. Let's give them a life outside of their home. Yeah. But by keeping them in their home for these sales, you're kind of relegating them back to the kitchen. So exactly. it's, you know, it's this weird oxymoronic concept where you're just trying to do talk out of both sides of your mouth at once. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, For example, when she was doing these parties, she moved on, like we said, from the dresses to the maxi skirts. She was saying that she, in five months, actually sold around 20,000 maxi skirts. So this thing was just taking off. So June 22nd, 2012 was the birth of LuLaRoe in good old Utah. There was a woman who had learned about these skirts and just kind of asked to, I guess, meet up with her and had she had a retail business of her own and was just kind of like going through all these skirts that Deanne had. And um, Deanne realized, hey, I could sell these to her. She of course had to call it Mark, who had to be the money man and tell her like, oh, this is a good you know venture to go into. Um, and she realized that she could sell these at a wholesale price to this woman who could then turn around, sell them as a retailer and both of them could be making money in this endeavor. And so she said, this is kind of when LuLaRoe was born. Um, She realized that she could form her own MLM. And then like we said, 2013 was when it officially became LuLaRoe LLC. It's really incredible. I mean, how this stuff is sort of contagious. So at these early stages, it was just word of mouth. And it was these women following Deanne's original business model. They would travel to different homes in Utah and California. They'd sell their clothes to different stay-at-home moms and their friends. And 
it's just, it's spread this way. And they all said that Deanne had this contagious energy and just like clearly loved fashion, clearly loved, you know, selling garments and clothing and patterns, whatever. And that, you know, that energy, that attitude was contagious and it was impossible not to feel excited about what you were selling, even if you weren't really in the market for it yourself. So like we said, 2014, these leggings, these disgusting buttery soft leggings that they became known for. Yeah. Um, That's when that all kind of launched. And then from there, they really took off. So 2014, I guess 2015, they were up to about 500 retailers. And the big push, even at this beginning stage, was for women to get involved, get these packages to sell um, and fund them however they could. So they were saying to borrow money from family. There were even rumors of women selling breast milk to be able to pay for it. And um, just as they were starting, like they kind of got to this point where they realized, okay, this is going to be something and we have to get a little bit more structure around it. And before kind of doing that, Mark and Deanne wanted to sit down their children and give them, which by the way, how many children did they have? They had a, they had quite a few children. It was they around had a ton of children. They each had their own children, right? Like, you know, in their own little family, Brady Bunch kind of thing. Yeah. And then two of their kids, one of Deanne's kids. Oh Yeah. <laughs> And one of her husband's kids got married to each right, other. Right. Yeah. And Which, they tried to justify it by being like, it's okay because they never grew up in the we're house. We're at together. the same house. Yeah. Together. Like, mm. Ooh, but I, still. I don't know. Yeah. It was creepy. But they gave their kids kind of the first in to get involved in this company, which, I mean, obviously, any parent, you know, they're seeing themselves be successful. They want their kids to be involved and that give them that opportunity. That's great. But these kids had no skills to run a company like this. None. And the majority of the upper management is their family. So it it's all kind of a, a recipe for disaster. Yeah, um, super disorganized. Yeah, yeah. And one of those individuals that got involved that kind of is shown throughout this documentary is Sam Schultz. He is actually Deanne's nephew and he became the head of entertainment. Um, He was the events director. He joined in 2015 and (laughs) it is kind of funny to see some of the people that he was able to get to come to these events. Oh my Um, God. It was shocking. Katy Perry, Kelly Clarkson, um, Kelly Clarkson, Mario, Mario Lopez, Lopez <laughs> I think was their first, which yes. is so hilarious because obviously these women went nuts for Mario oh, Lopez. I think on. he was at the first event, right? Yes. Yeah. He was the first one. And it was classic. Like they roped all these women in. They were like, come to this event and you'll get your pick with Mario Lopez. Right. Now these women are all like older millennial women who grew up with Mario Lopez in the nineties on Saved by the Bell. So they lost their shit and like came to this event, drank the Kool-Aid and, you know, bought into this crazy conglomeration. Yep. It was nuts. And Sam was like given no budget whatsoever when it came to organizing the events for this thing. Like he was just basically told, all right, you have unlimited funding like make it crazy because we want a real successful fun event for these women. So since he had no cap, he was just 
given free reign and ready to rock and could hire whoever, even though it was millions of dollars to hire these people. Yeah. He said when they, so originally, you know, there was a budget to this entertainment, um, at these, um, at these events, you know, at, at first, obviously he had a budget and then the company grew so much that one year he was just told, all right, you have no, mu- no budget. So he booked Katy Perry and he estimated that that cost about $30 million, which is insane. <laughs> yeah. Like it just, uh, yeah, it's crazy. So on January 25th, 2013, Mark and Deanne together file officially for an LLC for LuLaRoe. And at that point, by that August, LuLaRoe opened its first quote unquote home office. Its home office was in Corona. It was staffed entirely or almost entirely by Deanne's and Mark's family members. So get ready for this. Deanne's son, Kenneth, was the VP of sales. Deanne's daughter, Amelia, was the brand ambassador. Mm-hmm. Amelia's husband, Justin, was the chief marketing officer. Deanne's son, Jordan, was the head of leadership and cultural development. Kenneth's wife, Jill, was the spokesperson at social events. Jeff Thompson, Nicole's husband, was the VP of finance before he and his wife launched their own MLM for children's oh, clothes. Lovely. Taken after the parents here. Yeah. Mark's son, Austin, worked in analytics and his wife, Lindsay, sold clothes as a consultant. And so has Michael's wife, Anna. Many of the other relatives of Deanna and Mark also became consultants. And by the end of 2013, the company had around 100 consultants and it was earning a few million dollars in revenue, according to court records. Now, meanwhile, in June 2013, Diane, not to be confused <laughs> with Deanne, right. filed an LLC for her own multi-level marketing business called Honey and Lace. And it's now called Ew. Epiphany. Epiphany? And yeah, and Epiphany, like- which is not cute. Like oh, I thought, epiphany, I, I suppose. But with the E or without the E? Without the E, girl. Oh, 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 yeah. Terrible. Yeah. And so, spoiler alert, just glancing forward, in 2019, Lula Rowe actually sued Piffany and several ex-consultants <laughs> claiming that Piffany was essentially stealing their uh, consultants. Now, meanwhile, on. it's not like Piffany had to try very hard because the consultants were being hemorrhaged by that Oh, point. God, yeah. Yeah, the, the mass exodus or whatever that they talked about later on. Right. So, you know, you can really get the idea, though, from all of these different positions that were taken on by family members, A, how much nepotism there was, and B, how incredibly disorganized this was. These people were not professionals. They didn't go to school for this. They had no business being in these head positions of a major company, but they were anyway, and it was because they were put there by their parents. Yeah, and you can see because in this documentary, they interviewed some people that worked at the home office there. And um, one thing that I thought was just crazy was um, one employee who kind of started there at the very beginning in the onboarding department. He said that what would happen, anything that would come in and needed to be entered into some type of spreadsheet, they were all using Google Docs. The whole company was using Google Docs. And so there's sometimes, like, if you think about it, there's sometimes a lag if you're both in there at the same time, let alone if there's like hundreds hundreds of of people. people. Yeah. And so he said what would happen is that he'd see, you know, um, a cell that was blank, he'd go into it, start typing in it. 
And then somebody else would be doing that at the same time and something would get overridden by what he was typing or vice versa. And it was just an absolute mess. They had no idea how to run anything, no idea how to structure things. Um, and like you were saying, I think the one son was kind of touted as this Excel whiz, which yep. I don't even care if you know Excel, that's not going to like run a that's company. Not gonna, exactly. Unless and we're it's... back into like 1999 where it's so novel and crazy. Like, right (laughs) well and it's also it's so interesting too like when mark and deanne were interviewed for this documentary they basically said like listen we tried we tried to get the updated software right we tried we bought everything but by the time that we would get it installed because evidently you need computer people you need people who aren't your family members to try to install this crap by the time they would get it installed, it would be obsolete already. So they were just sort of stuck with their Google Docs and stuff that was available to like <laughs> your average lay people. Son. <laughs> yeah, their dipshit son who probably didn't know diddly squat. Yeah. It's like somebody who says they're proficient in Excel exactly. when you go for a new job He's and you like, really don't yeah, know that I much. learned in fifth grade how to make a pie chart using Excel. Ex- like Exactly. You know, That's all like- I know. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's so bad. But yeah, yeah apparently you know, the massive growth, the ineptitude of the family, you know, being the entire executive team was just going to be a disaster from the beginning. And instead of scaling back, there was this crazy push the entire life of the company to keep hiring, keep, you know, onboarding, keep calling, keep getting more people on board, because that's the whole idea of an MLM. Like you need to keep recruiting in order to have the base of the pyramid be expanded. And for the upper echelons of the pyramid to make money, there have to be those underlings. So there was just this crazy push towards recruitment that it was unsustainable. You know, the pyramid just was collapsing in on itself. Yeah. Yeah. And so to give you an idea of kind of how people got in on the base level, they could start by buying a package that was between 5,000 to $10,000. And essentially they would buy this package and they would own those pieces. They would own that clothing. And then it would be their responsibility. You know, if they wanted to make money off of it, they had to hustle and sell it. Um, And with this crazy growth, there was actually like a four to six week wait for these onboarding calls. And some women, it was like winning the lottery where you would go online, you'd submit the form and then you'd wait weeks, you know, be waiting by your phone, checking your phone because the onboarding department would then review your application, give you a call, say that you've been approved. You're approved to spend five to $10,000. Exactly. Like I think anybody could do that. And that's the saddest part of this is like, it was touted as this major opportunity and you're so lucky. This is a life-changing call. And meanwhile, they were recruiting anybody and everybody. Oh God. Yeah. Like we said, expand the base of that pyramid, keep, you know, adding that lower level and lower level under that. And it was anybody and everybody and everybody was getting these calls and they were frantic. They were so excited to get them. And so like we're saying, this is a clear pyramid scheme because really you're making more money off of um, people that you recruit as opposed to what you're actually selling. So for an example, 
Uh, one retailer gave the example that within a year and a half, she had purchased $78,000 worth of um, clothing and she sold it for about 83,000. So, I mean, you're making a couple thousand. And she said, even with business expenses, you know, it's all kind of a wash. So the retail, like the actual items aren't what is making, they're not making you money. It, but her bonus regardless of the, you know, the items was $65,000, which month, is insane compared to what crazy. you're making on the actual retail sales. Yeah. And that's what makes it an MLM. That's what makes it illegal. The fact that the majority, the vast majority of these people's earnings. Now, granted, this was the lucky person. Like right. this person that you're giving as an example was the exception, not the rule, no. because most people didn't make any money from this. And in order for a pyramid scheme to work, the lower levels of the pyramid can't make money at all. Um, it's really just the upper levels who are making it off of, like you said, recruiting, adding those lower levels, adding more people, getting more people on the hook. Yeah. So in, in 2016, for example, the top 0.01% of LuLaRoe retailers made over $150,000 a month in bonuses, while 70% of re retailers made zero in bonuses. Which is insane if you think yeah. about that. Yeah. It's just, it's not a good setup. And obviously that's why it's illegal. Um, and so to kind of give you a breakdown of these different levels in the LuLaRoe pyramid, um, we would have starting at the very bottom, we had the retailer and this was just somebody getting in at the very base level. They needed to continue to buy a certain amount every month to stay active as a retailer. Um, so that was kind of their incentive, I guess. And then their incentive was obviously to climb up this pyramid to make more money off of these bonuses. So above a retailer, you had a sponsor and a sponsor is anybody that signs up somebody below them and they are making a percentage of uh, money off of the in inventory bought by the person below them, not based on what the person below them sells, but the inventory that that person buys to sell. So already we're seeing like even in, in these two levels it's like duh clear it's already yeah a problem well and how much does this remind you of the slave master yes. relationship that we saw in nexium which again pyramid scheme yeah and you have people who are at the top profiting from the people on the bottom and the people on the bottom who are getting nothing and who are funding the lives of the people on the top so yeah, it's crazy. And, and it just, it just keeps going up. Like, um, so the, the next was, uh, a trainer, a trainer would have 10 people under you at either a sponsor or retailer level. At that point, you were making 5% off of what they ordered per month. Again, like it's not about what they, what they are selling. Plus you also started to get a trainer bonus. So this is where, where the, bonus really starts to come in. That is where you're actually making money. Um, then we go up to coach, which a coach has three trainers underneath them. Um, and then above that, the highest level you could reach is the mentor. And a mentor has three coaches who each had at least three trainers under them. Um, and it's, it's really crazy. Like one woman was saying that, um, for example, I don't remember what level she was, but she said if somebody onboarded and did one of those like $10,000 packages, just by them signing up, she was paid $300 instantly. 
So which is amazing. Like, like and just shows it makes you total exactly sense. where the money is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And and one of these women who um actually got in in 2013, I believe she was like the third retailer. Um, at one point she said she actually had 5,000 people under her. She didn't even know them all. Like, it's just absolutely insane. And she's making money off of all of them and all the people they recruit. And yeah, it's just crazy. crazy. crazy and meanwhile, crazy. as this is happening, as recruitment is at an all time high and it's burgeoning and all that, the quality of the leggings just cannot yeah. be sustained. So the buttery leggings that Ugh. the people grew to love and that they were searching for just became a totally different material. They started cranking out designs, which spoiler alert, were copyright infringed. It was a ton of, you know, instances of the designers stealing stuff from the internet because they were told to just crank out as many designs as possible. Um, And the one designer described it as, you know, gun to your head design. You would be forced to come up with let's say a certain number of designs they had to per have, day. She said their quota was a hundred designs per day, which, which is, is insane. insane. I mean, there's just not that many unique ideas no. in the world and no. you know, it's not sustainable. No. So they resorted to stealing designs from online to meet their quotas and to just like tweaking things. Oh, so slightly. Yeah. And these designs were hideous. So, oh. Oh, you know, awful. that paired with the fact that the material had changed uh, coupled with the fact that the leggings themselves couldn't be stored in the building because the right. room was running out. So they started storing them outdoors in these <laughs> giant bins and then it would rain on the leggings. Ugh. They would get moldy, disgusting, dirty, yeah. whatever. Lula mold. They, like... Lula mold. They would yeah. go out to the customers smelling disgusting, having holes, having problems with them, whatever. And so then you have these sellers and because they're getting these mixed bags of shipments of leggings with some pieces that are super highly valued. Um, I think they called them unicorns when there were certain like really special designs or Mm -hmm. sizes or colors. And then you had other ones that because of their size or their pattern or their color might be nearly impossible to sell. Yeah. So every single time that you're purchasing a package, you're risking that a good portion of it won't sell. So that's how LuLaRoe continues to make money this way is because let's say you sell, you know, 30% of your prints, 30% of your inventory you're forced to keep buying more because you just can't sell these ugly ass prints, these poor quality prints. So you keep buying more and selling less. And especially because the market's saturated with these Lula Rose vendors, because all the women in your neighborhood have probably heard of it at this point, because you're probably friends with all the other housewives in your neighborhood (laughs) and you recruited them. So it's saturated. And at this point, I mean, there's you're breaking even because you can't sell to anybody. They have the stuff already and they're working on selling their supply. Yeah. Well, I, I want to say too, I think what you're getting at too, is the fact that um, they tried to distinguish themselves from other MLMs because you can't pick your patterns in the packages that you get. So you, yep. you could pick whether or not you wanted like skirts or leggings or whatever, but you could, you could not pick your patterns. So they're at the company's mercy. The company knows like we can do whatever we want. We can give them hideous le- leggings and they're buying them anyway. Yeah. 
um, a lot of the LuLaRoe sponsors would really heavily encourage their consultants to buy more clothes if their sales were dropping. So they made it feel like it was your fault if you couldn't sell the clothes. And of course, the more options that you have in terms of size, color, pattern, whatever, the more potential customers you have. So they had really no choice but to continue this vicious cycle of buying and then trying to sell, probably failing to sell most of your inventory. So, okay, let me try and, you know, go in for another bag. You You don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. You just need more and more and more. So you're really operating at a loss at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And what I was getting at, I just found it was um, there. They also claimed that the exclusivity um, there, they claimed that there were 3000 or less of any print was made. So the unicorn thing that you're talking about, it's like, Oh, I really wanted this print. Oh, I really wanted this size or style or whatever it was. Um, this was kind of one of the ways that LuLaRoe kind of made themselves different from Tupperware or Mary Kay or something where everybody has the same products. These were based on exclusivity. So in theory, I mean, I think it actually is not a bad model for an MLM because as far as MLMs go I know yeah (laughs) exactly like yeah let's let's get the best of the worst but right you know at the very least it kind of makes it so that your product could be different from somebody else selling again like Mary Kay or something like you're not gonna have the same makeup um which could make you a little more, you know, have leverage, but the way that they do it with the packaging where you don't know what you're going to get is like, well, great. I could get, I could get the, the leggings that make me look like I have a penis or exactly. like a hamburger vagina, like, which you know. both were things by the <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely have to post some pictures of those. <laughs> oh, good idea. But yeah, so it was just these poor vendors were just at the mercy of the company and they were stuck in this horrible, horrible cycle where they just had to keep buying, failing to sell. And the vendors would be in this position where they'd be hosting these Facebook live parties and they would be forced to just peddle whatever they had and sell and sell and sell. And I don't know, it was like some kind of backwards auction and it's just it's scary. My gosh. And, you know, as you made the point before, it becomes really clear that the primary opportunity for compensation at this company isn't through sale. It's, you know, it's through bonuses earned through recruiting. Yeah. So, you know, you're really, it's not a clothing sales company. It's a recruiting company. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and like one example they gave was, there was somebody that got $200,000 in a bonus for one month. And it was like, how is that sustainable for a company right. paying Katy Perry $30 million? And how is that sustainable? It just like this, is it's so clearly not sustainable. Um, and they just continue on. I don't know if we want to get into like the cruise or whatever, but there was a cruise became the next big thing. You had to sell $12,000 worth of clothes per month. I don't know if it was over a certain period of time that you had to do that, like a certain number of months in a row. Um, But it was all these like big incentives. But at the same time, behind a lot of these big incentives and these big events, um, you know, these training events or whatever, if you were at the top, 
you were also spending a lot of money. So if you were a mentor, you are expected to pay for your own lodging, food, et cetera. And during these events, you were having to um, kind of do like training sessions where you're at a booth and showing people how to do better social media advertising or you know product descriptions or whatever it is. And it, it just, it's another level of uh, Mark and Deanne kind of, benefiting off of these people who have bought into this and aren't thinking beyond the fact that like, hey, I shouldn't have to be doing this much and investing so much of my own money into this. I don't know. I just, it just is kind of crazy to think like, that's not how normal companies work. No. And you can see how it would just get so out of control because these women, I mean, they really didn't know any better and I hate to be condescending that way, but there was one woman who spoke on the documentary and was telling her husband about how great of an opportunity it would be for the family and for her. And the husband was just like, buddy, what are you doing? Like what company makes you pay to be a part of it? Like that's just so insane. And, and she was so convinced because again, you know, there were all of these, these consultants became almost famous, like Facebook famous because they were getting touted for their sales. Deanne would come on and be congratulatory and would give them these big checks and would say, you know, this is what your hard work has gotten you. And this is all you have to do is work hard enough and try enough and you'll be in the same position as them. When meanwhile, the people on the lower end of the pyramid were automatically operating at a loss. Right. They, there was no way, even if they worked 10 times as hard as the people on the top of the pyramid, that they could earn the same no. money. They just didn't have the same earning potential because of their position on the pyramid. So it's really sad. And it just became such a power dynamic that you know, Deanne had operating against these poor, you know, lowly consultants at the bottom of the pyramid. Part of what, you know, led to this company's downfall is just the crazy growth they had and the people that they had working at the top who really couldn't handle this. Um, So in 2016, December 2016, there were actually 60,000 consultants um, and it became a $1.3 billion uh, retail company. And it's it's a crazy amount of growth. In 2015, it was at 70 million. 2016, 1.3 billion. So it, just over this really short amount of time, this company became a billion dollar company. And these people, again, family members that were at the top running this crazy big business were just not equipped to deal with it. Not even close. And it's funny. So it turns out that Deanne um, and her sister were also making another stream of income happen via pressuring her um, different consultants to go to Tijuana, Mexico and have weight loss surgery. Now, this is all part and parcel to the whole ideals of femininity, what we talked about in the way beginning and how women were kind of meant to have a certain image and to be thin, this, that, and the third. Now, Deanne herself was no skinny mini. Um, She was a pretty big lady, but she went down to Mexico, had the weight loss surgery and became emaciated. Yeah. So 
it was crazy. Lene, the sister, would charge the different consultants $5,000. Now, this is after they pressured them. Oh, big time. They put them in different groups, little chat groups, and would say, oh, you know, so-and-so, you're like looking kind of big. And we're going down next week. We've got one more spot to go down to Tijuana. Exactly. They would like sell it as like a little trip and like, oh, it's so easy. You can just come down with us to Mexico. Right. And so they would charge them $5,000, but the true cost would only be $4,000. So you would pay the sister, Lene, through PayPal. She would take the $1,000 cut and she would take these poor saps to Tijuana and they t- referred to themselves as the Tijuana skinnies. But there was just always this will imposed from Deanne and her sister. And, you know, the word that Deanne likes her leaders to be a size small or a size medium. And so <laughs> clearly these leaders were making $1,000 a pop for sending right. these fat independent consultants <laughs> to Mexico to have this surgery. Now, because it's in Tijuana, it's not regulated the same way as the United yeah. States surgery was. So maybe the surgery will make you skinny, but it also might make you maimed or it might kill right. you. Right. Yeah. So, they're not, they're not staying there either. Like they're not getting the proper, like, hospital stay and uh, monitoring it's pretty much like all right surgery's over turn around let's go back like exactly exactly so and to make you feel even better about the place where these people were getting sent to the clinic was apparently called obesity not for me four as in the number four so (laughs) if that doesn't convince you some of the quotes from their website are in bypass surgery, the patient may have small diarrhea when they eat too much food or they eat food that contains too much fat. And what they're talking about here, guys, is called dumping syndrome. And as that name implies, oh, there's God. nothing small about it. It can cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, rapid or irregular heartbeat, hypoglycemia, yeah. and it can require surgical probably. intervention. So Ooh. the complications of these procedures are really just... Uh, endless there's you know shocking amount of them and it's just massively misleading that these women thought that okay we'll go down to mexico we'll get this all fixed and here you are you know getting probably botched surgery and at the hands of lula rose leader who's totally encouraging and profiting right from these surgeries yeah what's her interest in it really you know just like with everything else Exactly. Um, And so just speaking of this kind of ideal feminine woman, um, Deanne also at some of these leadership events, she would use a book that her mom wrote, The Secret Power of Femininity. Um, And she would use this book for training. The real kind of mentality that they would drill into these women was on the one hand, kind of using this girl boss, you know, language, But then the flip side was really the message is keep the women in the home, like we're saying, and, you know, don't become more powerful than your husband. Um, There was this big idea of retiring your husband too, which they kind of touted it as a way to make the family stronger where, you know, it becomes a business that is both of yours, like your husband's involved in it. And it's quality family time because now you're both at home all the time. 
And in reality, a lot of people saw through this probably after the fact, unfortunately, that it was a really great way for Mark and Deanne to get these people to be solely reliant on Lou LaRoe. Like they had invested everything, all their eggs in one basket. You know, the husband and wife are, are both working in Lou LaRoe um, and they're just kind of reliant on them. So if Lou LaRoe goes down, they go down. Right. And around, I guess, probably the same time in spring of 2017, there was a massive change to the bonus structure at the company. And I think this was kind of one of the major hits that LuLaRoe took and became their downfall. So in April 2017, all of a sudden, coincidence, I think not, LuLaRoe decided all of a sudden to change the bonus structure for its consultants. So instead of before where the consultants would get bonuses based on how much inventory their downlines or the people below them were buying, now consultants would be getting bonuses based on how many pieces their downlines were selling. Right. And obviously because of the issues that we discussed, you know, saturation of the market and the products themselves being defunct people were not selling these products. They couldn't, there was just, there was too much crappy product. Too many people had it. There were just a ton of different issues creating, you know, a real inability on the part of these consultants to sell and move these leggings. And basically because of this change, the monthly bonus checks that the consultants were used to making dropped by about 75%. Yeah. So it's crazy. I mean, they, it was a total um, immediate negative impact on the company's revenues. So I think it says within three months, the sales dropped approximately 250 million to around a hundred million in August of 2017. And all of a sudden the consultants decide, all right, we're getting the hell out of here. They start leaving en masse from about 50,000 people in early 2017. It went to 35,000 people in September 2018, which, you know, no coincidence there. Obviously, it's clear what's going on here. These people are like, shit, there's no way that we're going to make the same amount of money and we're screwed. Let's get out of here while the getting's good. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And another factor that kind of went to this whole change in LuLaRoe kind of falling from grace was um, they instituted a 100% buyback policy around the same time. And it was said that this kind of did two things. One, people that were looking to get out, got out. They were like, all right, I'm done. I'm, I'm sending all my stuff back. I'm getting out. Then it also had other people that were considering joining LuLaRoe join it because it took away that risk of kind of buying that inventory. If it doesn't sell, you know, now you have the, the fail safe, you can send it back. Um, but then in on September 13th, 2017, they actually did away with this buy, this 100% buyback policy. And <laughs> this is where one of their biggest lawsuits came from because now you had people who, let's say, had already sent their stuff back and hadn't been processed yet or had signed up under this policy, assuming that they would be able to send it back. Now, all of a sudden, LuLaRoe says, oh, yeah, this was something we were planning on doing all along. We were planning on, you know, changing this policy, which when it first went into effect, 
had no expiration date. It was explicitly said that there was like no expiration date on this 100% buyback. Um, and so again, this is one of their biggest uh, lawsuits in October of 2017 for breach of contract with this 100% buyback issue. Which is hilarious. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, what's crazy is it's still alive and active today. So I went on the website just to see out of pure curiosity, (laughs) like who are the consultants in the area? Do they still exist? Are they still up and running? And they are even here in Philadelphia, there were a few different consultants that you could go to, to buy their products. So in spite of the fact that all this stuff happened, I mean, it is still standing Yeah, and my gosh. I mean, it's just, it's crazy how these MLMs, they all have sort of the same mm-hmm. rise and demise situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's the type of thing. If you get in at the beginning, you're making a lot of money, but at the same time over the, you know, um, lifespan of it, you're probably not making money for the right reasons or by the right methods. You're probably making money off of people that don't know better and are buying you. product. Yeah, exactly. So, so as of May, 2021, as we said, this is still standing, still happening, you know, for better or for worse, they survived. But as of May, 2021, LuLaRoe received an F rating with the better business bureau. <laughs> so clearly they're still having the same issues yeah. with failure to address complaints and the issues with charging sales tax in places that don't make sense to charge sales oh, tax. So we are clearly still dealing with issues here. Yeah. And I know I've heard the the nickname Lula No, which I think definitely fits, you know, based on their history and where they even are right now. That F rating is not good. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is Betsy Boss Podcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening. 